Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Well, good morning. Good morning to you on this 23rd day of February, 2021. Uh, Yesterday at sunset, the President of the United States, his wife, uh, the Vice President of the United States, and her husband stood in what could best be described maybe as solemn recognition of the overwhelming grief that people across the nation Um, have experienced, continue to experience, and will continue to experience in uh, the face of the finality of death. Um, I was reminded of the words, uh, in fact, the the book of C.S. Lewis, A Grief Observed, as I watched and listened um, to not only the words spoken, but uh, the power of unspoken words, um, the power of periods of silence. And so what was going on last night um, was described as a memorial service, and I want you to consider that language, and I want you to consider whether or not you find that language satisfactory and whether or not um, if you did watch the service, if, if it rose to the level of, um, of that for you, curious about that. Um, but certainly since the CDC began noting COVID-19 as an official cause of death, um, that is language that has now appeared on more than a half a million death certificates in the United States of America, millions around the world. Um, Directly or indirectly, it is a contributing factor. And so the loss of those lives leaves a void in the lives of others. That is the empty chair to which President Biden pointed so effectively. I know that when you stare at the empty chair around the kitchen table, it brings it all back, no matter how long ago it happened, as if it happened uh, that moment that you looked at the empty chair. Um, He then talked about the everyday things, the small things, the tiny things that you miss the most, the secret, uh, the scent when you open the closet, the park uh, that you go by where you used to stroll, the movie theater where you met, the morning coffee that you shared together, the bend in his smile or the perfect pitch in her laugh. Um... Those are real for Joe Biden. He is, in fact, a man acquainted with grief. And so he does effectively, very effectively, um, bring those feelings to the fore. And so let me acknowledge that this morning. Let me acknowledge that um, we are a people acquainted with grief. And for you, it may be avoid an empty chair left by a loved one or a coworker or a neighbor or a service provider or a friend. Whose death do you grieve today? And then as you consider that, consider the amazing and awesome hope that we have in Jesus Christ and the reality that we, although we grieve along with everyone else, We do not grieve as everyone else because we don't grieve as those who have no hope. 
And in my personal opinion, that is what was missing from this memorial service last night. Yes, there, um, there is an empty chair. The question is whether or not um, we recognize that that person now sits somewhere forever. And, and President Biden failed to address that. Um, he did point to his own faith. Um, I believe that he, you know, at least indirectly um, is making reference to his own faith when he's talking about the rituals that we uh, that we don't have or have not had the opportunity to um, experience together. But he also came right to the edge of lying. And I want um, and I want you to listen to his words and I want you to consider for yourself what in here is just not quite the whole truth. Here's what the president said for those who have lost loved ones, um, this is what I know. They're never truly gone. They'll always be a part of your heart. I know this as well, and it seems unbelievable, but I promise you the day will come when the memory of the loved one that you lost will bring a smile to your lips before it brings a tear to your eye. That day will come, I promise you. My prayer for you, though, is that day will come sooner rather than later, and that's when you know you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. As for me, The way through sorrow and grief is to find purpose. I don't know how many of you have lost someone uh, a while ago and are wondering, uh, is he or she proud of me now? Is this what they want me to do now? I know that's how I feel, and we can find purpose, purpose worthy of the lives they lived and worthy of the country we love. Now, while those, this is now Carmen speaking, no longer quoting the president. While those might be nice words and comforting ideas, I have to ask you if they are true. Is it true that those who die are never really gone? Or are they, in fact, really gone? Death is either real or it is some kind of illusion. And you have to ask yourself, which is it? And the president's prayer for those who have lost a loved one, his prayer that their grief might hasten past that sorrow would turn to laughter and to do so quickly, um, to what end? To what end? Well, he says that, that for those who are alive today, that they would know that they are going to be okay. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to just get to the place where you're just okay? I don't ever want to be okay with death. Death is a reality, but I'm not okay with it. And only those who are in Christ can actually overcome and defeat it and ever smile in the face of it. So I feel like the president missed an opportunity to declare the true truth last night. And maybe that's what's left for us to do today, um, because we're the ones who know the people who are continuing to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Their grief is not going to be turned um, to laughter without Jesus. It's just not going to happen. Um, when the president says, uh, as for me, the way through sorrow and grief is to find a purpose, I, I say, you know, fooey on that. The, the way through grief is to walk with Christ into the valley of the shadow of death and back out of it in the companionship of the good shepherd who went all the way to hell and back for you and me. I mean, to death on a cross that we might live again. So I know that might sound harsh, um, but you, you need to live toward a greater purpose than the glory of those who have died in the flesh. We were created and redeemed and called for something far greater than that. People are grieving today. We got to be the people who know the name of the one who alone provides the hope, and his name is Jesus.
All right, enough on that. Dr. Mark Caleb Smith joins me next. We're going to talk about some things going on at the Supreme Court. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. All right, joining me now, Dr. Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. Welcome back, sir. Hey, Carmen, how you doing? I'm well, I'm well. All right, a couple of things going on at the Supreme Court. Um, I know that this was this happened late, and so it didn't really make our official back and forth list. But um, the Supreme Court denied to hear the case brought by the former president of the United States, Donald Trump, and the Republican Party of the state of Pennsylvania regarding um, their their voting process. Uh, feels like a missed opportunity in terms of the courts uh, weighing in on some shenanigans. Um, what what's your take? Well, certainly there were some dissenting opinions, like Justice Thomas uh, dissented, saying essentially what you just said, that uh, the court really has taken advantage of this chance to to clarify some things and to sort of answer some uh, some questions from the last election cycle. Uh, but the majority didn't agree with that. And you have to understand the court's culture. I mean, typically the court likes to stay away from these kind of politically explosive, hot-button kinds of issues especially when they're left to other branches of government. And so when it's a legislative responsibility, you know, the Constitution gives state legislatures the power to do this. And again, the charge is that Pennsylvania, that didn't happen. Um, The court really would rather stay away from it. I think that's reflected in the majority vote. So I agree with you, a missed opportunity, perhaps. Uh, But also, I should note that even in Justice Thomas's dissent, uh, he did say that there's really no evidence that there was a significant enough amount of an effect of any of these changes that would have changed an election. And so people have to understand, even in his position, his willingness to revisit this, he said, yeah, but the, the impact would have been limited, at least as it related to the presidential election in 2020. Yeah, super helpful. I encourage people to read Justice Thomas's dissent um, as they're uh, considering that, that conversation today. Um, the Supreme Court has also denied the request of the former president to keep his financial records guarded against inquiry. What's going on there? Yeah, and this is really just a follow-up of what happened last summer, uh, where the the case went to the court, uh, and President Trump's been trying to protect his documents and his information, uh, primarily from the Manhattan District Attorney, Cyrus Vance. And uh, the president's tried to shield himself from that inquiry for quite some time. And last July, the court said the president really doesn't have any special privilege as president to be free from these kind of subpoenas or these kinds of investigations. When they made that decision, the court remanded the case, which just simply means they pushed it down to a lower court to settle some final issues. And so what we saw yesterday was that case finally making its way back up to the court for them to make a final determination on it. And so uh, no opinion, no votes, no dissents, no nothing. They just simply allowed the lower court decisions to stand in this case, uh, which means that this case can move forward against the the former president of the United States. You know, I think... In this sense, uh, the possibilities of Donald Trump's political future probably more connected to these kind of legal investigations, uh, even than they were the impeachment proceedings uh, from a bit ago. All right. That's incredibly helpful. Um, thank you for that um, lucid, lucid review there. Um, Merrick Garland is sitting in Senate confirmation hearings uh, to serve as the next Attorney General of the United States. We've got to take a very brief break. When Dr. Mark Caleb Smith and I return, we're going to talk about uh, what Merrick Garland's priorities are likely to be if he is confirmed. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. 
continue my conversation with Dr. Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. Um, let's talk about Judge Merrick Garland. He is currently sitting in Senate confirmation hearings. Um, what do you what What should we expect from him if he is confirmed, which I think we all expect, as the next Attorney General of the United States? Yeah, I think he will be confirmed. I think you're right about that. I mean, even yesterday, the evidence was that the senators who are pushing back on him a little bit uh, were really pushing back on some very narrow issues. He didn't get a lot of language that suggested uh, he'd be denied confirmation, even from the Republicans. So I suspect bipartisan support for his uh, nomination. Uh, the thing that he signaled yesterday that I think is the most interesting um, is that the January 6th Capitol insurrection or riot or however you want to define that is really going to be his priority stepping into office. Um, so this, this, is, this investigation is not going to go away. Uh, it's going to be at the top of his list. Uh, and he, interestingly, I think, he connected it to what he sees as a domestic terrorism problem that we have. Uh, now, you know, that could be politically uh, a hot button, politically explosive uh, in many ways. So he's trying to connect what we saw on January 6th to broader trends in American society. Um, he even equated it to something like the Oklahoma City bombing uh, or even the KKK, you know, where we had networks of terror that we needed to deal with in the United States. And so uh, if he's right about that, you know, that would be quite a story. But uh, that's going to create some political waves if he goes that direction. Um, all right. So ride that wave for just a second. When you, What kind of political waves does that create? Well, I mean, I think I guess the question is, is how do you define that idea of domestic terrorism? Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, I, I'm a conservative person and I think conservatives are always worried that uh, it, somehow they're going to be lumped into militias and hate groups and other groups just simply by being conservative. Now, I think Merrick Garland, by reputation, is, is fair. He's judicious. Uh, so I doubt he would have overly broad definition of what these domestic terror groups look like. Uh, but clearly they're thinking right wing domestic terror and they're going to make if they make connections to January 6th, then it's uh, it's going to be dramatic. I'll just say that. All right. There's a few other um, uh, confirmation hearings that we're watching as well. Um, what, what are you watching? Uh, you know, right now, interesting, I think, is to watch the Democratic caucus and the Senate and see how well they hold together in this nomination process. I mean, so far. President Biden has had a pretty easy go of it when it comes to his nominees. They've gotten broad support on the whole. Um, and Democrats have stuck together. Recently, we've heard some Democrats begin to say they're going to oppose uh, some of these nominees. You know, Joe Manchin from West Virginia, uh, moderate Democrat, saying he's going to oppose Neera Tandon uh, in her nomination to the Office of Management and Budget. That's a big deal. Uh, that means that Democrats really need to find Republican support now for her nomination in order for her to be pushed across the Senate or the, the line in the Senate. And uh, right now that looks like it's tough. Uh, Mitt Romney has come out against her nomination. Uh, Collins from Maine has come out against her nomination. And so uh, right now I'd say she's really uh, on thin ice when it comes to, to being confirmed in the OMB. All right. And then um, a guy who I would prefer not be confirmed, um, and that is uh, Javier or Xavier uh, Becerra. I have heard his name pronounced multiple ways. Right. Um, what do you think? What do you think is going on there? Yeah, you, he, I agree with you. I think of all the president's nominees, he's probably the most problematic. Uh, former member of the House, former attorney general in California, and is really known as a pretty hardliner when it comes to abortion. 
he voted against a, a repeal or a ban on partial birth abortion when he was in the House. Uh, he's he sort of he began lawsuits against the Little Sisters of the Poor uh, as California Attorney General, and so he's getting a lot of pushback as being sort of a radical on social issues. And I, I think you're going to see. I think there's a good chance that he will not survive this process. Um, and it is an unusual, you know, presidents often have one or two nominees that kind of bubble up to the top of the surface. He's also becoming a political lightning rod. It looks like members of the Republican Party are starting to fundraise off of his nomination and even do advertising uh, based on, around his nomination. Uh, Tom Cotton, for example, in the Senate is making a big deal of it and is getting a lot of attention in the process. And so uh, I think it's I agree with you. I think he's problematic and hopefully the Republicans will, will mount an effort. And we'll see what the Democrats do in response. All right. Um, there are. Um there are issues across the country um, in terms of competency in, in governance and the way people carry themselves in public and then actually uh, what they're doing to govern well. I'm thinking here of uh, the governor of the state of New York um, and Andrew Cuomo, and I'm also thinking here of all that is going on in the state of Texas. When you think about competency in governance versus sort of big public personalities and people who are really good at getting media attention, um, I just have this deepening concern about uh, about what feels to me to be total incongruence, the people who get a lot of media coverage and have a lot of sound bites versus those who are actually doing the hard work of policymaking and real governance. No, I, I think you put that very well. Uh, there's too much of a gap often between what it takes to win an election and what it takes to govern effectively. And right now, it looks like that gap is getting wider and wider. So if you can leverage social media attention, if you can raise money, if you can put advertising on the air uh, and win an election, then guess what? You now have a responsibility to govern. And unfortunately, that uh, that governance is suffering in some cases. I think you're right in New York and in Texas uh, we've seen that. And really, the failure in the system is us. You know, it's up to us to hold elected officials accountable for their actions. It's up to us to vote them out uh, if they don't perform up to the standards that we expect of them. Too often, though, we give people a free pass just because they're in our tribe. You know, if you're a Democrat and you like Andrew Cuomo because of his position on various issues, then you may be tempted to give him a pass on what's happened as it relates to COVID 19. If you're a Republican, you like Ted Cruz uh, on the whole. Maybe you give him a pass for uh, for leaving the state for a vacation uh, in the middle of a crisis. Sometimes I think we need to even hold our own members accountable. Uh, and I think it would send a good message, frankly, to elected officials across the country. I agree. I think we're in the middle of a, of a real transition in how people win elections. Uh, we just simply have to do a better job as voters. All right. And then um, you have a great piece posted right now. The website is BereansAtTheGate.com. Um, and you are reminding us of a debate that that seems to go on and on and on and never dies. But it is a really good reminder. Um, what is it? What is it all about? Uh, it's really about what do we expect out of our representatives? You know, it, it was highlighted during the impeachment proceedings. But anytime you have a high profile vote, whether it's in Congress or your local uh, city council or general assembly, what do you expect your representative to do? You know, do you expect them to do exactly what you want them to do? Or do you expect them to use their expertise and to, to vote based on their conscience or their own judgment? Yeah, I think we have to give our elected officials some latitude here to vote based on their conscience and their judgment. 
uh, and let them bring their expertise to bear. You know, I don't know as much as they do when it comes to a lot of issues. And sometimes I just have to simply trust their knowledge and trust their judgment, let them make a decision and move forward. When I get to the ballot box as a voter, uh, that's my chance to hold them accountable and hold them responsible. You know, do I agree with them mostly, disagree with them mostly? I can make my judgment at that point when I vote. Uh, but right now, it seems like we expect our elected officials to do exactly what we would do all the time. And, you know, I'm just not I'm not comfortable with that assumption. You know, I, I'm not comfortable that I have the uh, the knowledge, the wisdom and the judgment that they can often bring to bear on a very technical and very difficult issues. And so it's a consistent issue uh, for sure. Uh, and it's been around since our founding. It's been around really since the existence of, of Republican forms of government. So it never goes away, as you said. It's also not, you know, that person is not just my representative. They are my right. representative, but they're they're a, they're a representative of we the people. Um, and I don't always agree with the we the people where I live. I mean, I don't know about you, but I mean, you know, like, right, I'm not always completely 100 percent on the same page with all of my neighbors and uh, people who live in my congressional district for sure. Um, and so, you know, there's there's some humility in this as well that's required of us. Right. So while I think that we talk about the responsibility um, uh, for voting and for electing people who are competent and voting for competence, not just social media or media appeal or, you know, who can m- most effectively foment rage uh, against the other side, like, right, that's the conversation about uh, New yep. York and Texas, and some one of our listeners said, "Why is California not on your list?" Well, yes, exactly. A poorly governed state where competency yep. is it, yeah, it's hard to find. Um, uh, but then there's this this other question, and that is, I don't always get what I want out of the person who uh, is elected to represent my district, and that's something we need to be mindful of as well uh, as we walk in humility. All right, Mark, that's all we got time for today. That's Dr. Mark Caleb Smith. You can find him on Twitter. You can also find him at Cedarville University. Um, and I am sure today that he is wearing a bow tie. What What does today's bow tie look like? Today is not a bow tie. I've got 8.30 <gasps> class that I'm running to, so sorry. Shocking. No bow tie today. I no apologize. bow tie today. That's okay. That's okay. We'll uh, we'll look forward to, uh, for the next, to the next time and a report. This is important. The people want to know. All right. Thanks, man. <laughs> we'll be right back. In what do you hope and whom do you hope? Where does your hope reside? Does hope have a name? When you consider the hope um, set before us, where does your mind turn? Where does your imagination go? Um, what are the images and and even feelings that arise within you? We're going to talk with Dr. Junius Johnson, we have talked with him on occasion. He's the author of The Father of Lights, um, which is a which is a work on beauty. But we're going to talk today about hope. Where um, where does our hope come from? In what do we hope? For what do we hope? And how does our imagination um, really lay the groundwork for all of that? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Often parents wonder if they should shield their teen from hearing about their own mistakes. Because, of course, as moms and dads, we don't want the kids to say, well, you did it, Dad, so I can do it too. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Honesty with your teen takes guts. But teens need to hear that they're not the only ones struggling. 
They're looking for honest, authentic answers, emotionally, spiritually, physically, and intellectually. A parent's got to be prudent about what's shared and when, but the discussion about life choices and mistakes is important. It's part of your child's process of discovery and growth. Are there mistakes in your past that might help someone else make a better decision? Want more help from Mark Gregston? Find books and other resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org. That's parentingtodaysteens.org. Joining us this morning, Junius Johnson. You can find him at JuniusJohnson.com. He is, among other things, the author of The Father of Lights, A Theology of Beauty. We have talked with him um, on occasion in the past. Junius, welcome back. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah, so um, you've made a move, I think, since the last time that we talked. And God might be up to something in, in Memphis because you're like the third person in three days I've talked with that's moved to Memphis. <laughs> it's a happening place. It's a happening place. All right, so I'm gonna I'm gonna connect you with a new friend um, whose name is uh, is Recab Gray. He's a he's a pastor. He's he and his wife have just moved to Memphis. They have a baby due sometime in the next week. It's baby number four. So I feel like they could use some friends. Uh, so there you go. That's what I'm gonna do when you get you and I get Sounds offline. Good. I'm gonna connect you with him. Um, all right, you you are always thinking about beauty, but in thinking about beauty, um, you are also always thinking about what other um, sort of large theological categories. Yeah, so lately, um, a lot of my energy is focused on the imagination, um, and a, a big part of that is that, uh, you know, some of the the crisis of what I see in contemporary Christian thought, which is mirrored in just you know Western thought and American thought in general, is a crisis of the imagination. Uh, we have failed to we fail to approach the world with the same type of rigorous imagination that we do with a sort of vigorous reason. Um, and, and reason shorn of the imagination is, um, is, is really, it's like having his leg cut off. It's very hampered. And so I first got into this line of thinking because I became aware of just how important imagination was in guarding intellectual humility, um, mm. which is obviously a very important uh, trait for any Christian to have, but especially for a theologian to have. If you're going to try to think God's thoughts after him, or if you're going to try to follow the clues that God has laid down for us and worship God with your mind, it's going to require a lot of humility to recognize where you can and can't go, where you shouldn't even mm. be trying to go, etc. And so the imagination has this really important function of guarding against pride by reminding us how much more lies outside of what we know. But lately I've been coming to see also that the imagination has this more positive function as well, that it's, it's directive. It directs our intellect and ultimately directs our heart, directs us in which direction we ought to hope, which direction we ought to dream, and which directions we ought to trust. So a few things come to come immediately to mind um, as, you're, uh, as you're talking. One, um, when you talk about guarding, sort of guarding the theological pursuit and the pursuit of God via the mind— um, I think what you're saying is I have to have a, a kind of a robust relationship with my own imagination um, lest I make be tempted to make God in my image, to reduce God to something that I can understand, that I can uh, describe, contain, um, you know, sort of have a handle on versus just recognizing there is so much more. I mean, who is yeah. this God? 
Yeah. Who right. is this? Right. And so I need to constantly have this like slack jawed, who is this God um, edge, um, openness. And the imagination is what facilitates that. Right. That's right. Um, I, I, one of the ways in which I think about it is that um, one of the one of the primary things that humans like to do is to project, and so we're constantly forecasting and projecting things out to see. Um, you know, we take individual things we encounter and we universalize them, or we take one thing that we see in one place and we project it to another place. And that's really the work of the imagination, which is the faculty that deals with possibility, what what could be the case, what could be true. When we don't engage our imaginations properly and richly, reason takes over that job of forecasting, but it does so with a much smaller sphere. And so we wind up thinking, this is the only thing I could imagine being true, and so this has to be true, Right. Whereas a rich imagination would say, gosh, you know, this is the only thing I can, I can reason out. This is all I can make sense. But I can imagine so many other possibilities, and I can't tell which one of them might be true, which helps me to realize just how limited my reasoning is and just how limited is the direction I can go with my reasoning. There's a, there's a what if, right? There's a what if part of this. Yes. Um, t- talk about the connection here to hope and a hope that is grounded in a reality that literally I can only imagine. Yeah, you know, there's such a there's there's such a, a battle and a war against hope as the the forces that are arrayed against the Christian that want to see the Christian fail, that want to see God's plan come to naught, that wants to hurt God in some small way by taking away from him those he loves. Those forces are going to come after your hope on a regular basis and it's a constant assault and battle and it leads to discouragement and the ultimate the ultimate opposite of hope is despair. When we give up on the possibility that things could get any better for us, that things could get any better for our world, that God could be doing something or will do something that will make everything all right in the end. You know, and the Bible says that the, the people fail for lack of vision. And in Christianity, it's not just important that we hope. It's, and it is important that we hope. Right? It's a theological virtue, faith, hope, and love. Those are three duties that we have. But it's not just important that we hope in a vague sense. It matters very much what you hope in, because to hope in the wrong thing is to succumb to idolatry. So it's about casting the right images before our minds to then place our hope in. And that hope is going to be made, is going to be substantialized by our faith. And so this is one of the reasons why the Lord speaks so much in poetry and so much in symbols and images in the scriptures is because he is training our imaginations within a language that they can use to cast forward this hope that he wants us to have as a people, to be, in fact, a people of hope so that we have the the specific thing that we're hoping after that our faith can then engage and substantialize. All right. uh, Junius and I are going to take a very brief break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the work of the imagination in grounding our hope, the way that imagination receives hope, guards it, nurtures it, expands upon it, and ultimately charts a path to meaningful action that can sort of help hope be realized in the world that God so loves. So there's a little bit of um, not just praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, but how we walk that out in tangible hope. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right. 
Rejoining the conversation now with Dr. Junius Johnson, among other things. He is the author of Father of Lights. We, we like to talk with him about deep theological things because he puts them, he frames them in ways that you know, regular people can, uh, can understand. So, Junius, let's talk about how it is the work of the imagination to actually ground our hope. Yeah. You know, hope, hope resides in the heart. And the imagination is the part of our thinking that is concerned with the heart. It's when, when our when our head turns to the heart is the imagination that we naturally tend to to reach for, and I, I think I hope that everyone has experienced this in some small measure, um, at least in this sort of way. You watch a movie or you read a book or something like this. You read an inspiring story about a saint, um, about one of the great missionaries of the past or whatever, and as you encounter that story in whatever form, um, you see something that makes sense to you about your own life and your own calling. You see something inspiring about your own life and calling. And then as you go out to try to face the next challenge in front of you towards on the path to that calling, whether that's getting that, taking that step towards getting the education you need, or whether that is reaching out and talking to that missionary agency, whether that's volunteering for that short-term mission trip, whatever the next thing might be, you remember that story that you encountered with this other person. And their life becomes an inspiration on your life and enables you, makes it easier to take that next step. What's really going on there is that the, an image, is, images are coming to you from this other faithful life and your imagination is receiving those images. And then it begins to, to cast that what if question you asked before, what if something like that were possible for me? What if God wanted something like that for me? And it turns towards our heart, it turns towards our desires, and it's able to connect those two things. And it's able to put out a vision of, you know, I always knew that I could go on that short-term mission trip. I, I felt a little pang of conviction when it was announced in church in that morning, and I didn't respond to it right away. But now that I've encountered this other possibility, now I can see what it more concretely what it might look like for me to go on that trip. Now I've got a vision for it. And I've mm. got something specific that I can begin to direct my heart towards. I think that's the work of the imagination. It, it takes the generalities of our possibilities and makes them more more specific for us, so that we have these specific pathways that we can, can that we can walk down. Yeah, if I can't see myself there, if I can't imagine it, then I'm, you know, I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna walk toward it. I'm not gonna take the intentional steps that lay the groundwork to actually create a path. Is that is that part of what we're talking about here? So if, if I have a, if I'm praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, but I don't genuinely have, uh, I, I've not spent any time imagining what the kingdom of heaven is like, which Jesus spends a lot of time talking about. Like, you know, yeah. he is like, right, he, t- he spends a lot of time talking about the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of God is like, um, but mm-hmm. if I don't dwell in that, if I don't imagine what a kingdom based on the principles of God in the presence of God by the power of God, if I don't spend time dwelling on that and allowing my imagination to go there, I cannot, I literally cannot uh, lay the bricks in the ground here that then the here and now, which would, which would manifest or materialize or realize those prayers of, of what the kingdom being brought to earth today would look like in any substantial way. That's right. And it's, it's, it's all, it's both the fact that we won't be able to take those steps because we won't see where to place our feet. But it's also true that if we aren't continually making straight in the wilderness a highway for our God, the wilderness is encroaching to overcome that highway. Mm. And so increasingly, everything that I've ever experienced, 
right? What I take as real what I can keep in my mental space. And this is a, this is a serious problem for a rationalistic society like our own because we then start to think, well, if I can't feel it or touch it or see it, it's not real because those are the only things I can really keep before my mind. That's, those are the only things you can keep before your mind with a sort of scientific reasoning. But the imagination allows us to keep a lot more stuff before our mind. If I constantly am thinking about just these small things of this is what I have to do today, this is what I'm doing at work, this is what I have to do to keep the house clean, that's going to become my entire universe. And the imagination is a faculty that is charged with keeping our hearts and our thinking big and broad so that we can never lose sight of the fact that even though, yeah, I've got to do the dishes now, I've got to get that laundry done, nevertheless, I'm also a son of the king dwelling in a vast universe, part of an amazing story, the greatest story ever told. Junius, um, when you think about the challenges that people are facing today, um, I think that you know, when, when life gets hard and life is hard, I mean, life is hard, really, really hard for a lot of people right now. Um, and, and then we talk about hope and we talk about the imagination and we talk about beauty. Um, I don't want people to be disconnected from the conversation Mm -hmm. that we're having, um, because life is hard and, and sometimes really hard. Can you, Mm -hmm. can you sort of re-knit the conversation back together to the reality that people are walking in today? Yeah, you know, and life is really hard. And, and even, you know, I'll say, I'll say now that for me, life has been really hard uh, this past year. And it's, that's kind of a common thing we can all share for different reasons. Um, it's an interesting time in that we all have one common thread in the pandemic that's running through the difficulties in our lives and that has manifested itself differently for each of us. But it's been a, it's been a hard 15 months for, for my family um, and I would say the hardest of my life. And I say that to point out that it, for, for me, this has not been um, a, a nice idea that I can play with in the repose of the scholarly life without any of life's difficulties bothering me. This has been the way that I have been able to survive the many attacks and the many, and the many buffets that I've had to face um, over the last several months is the recognition that what I'm facing right now is not all that there is. It's not even the most important stuff that there is, right? I mean, how many times does Christ encourage us to to navigate the world with an eye to the world to come. And that's why he's always talking about the kingdom. Like I said, it's, it's kind of embarrassing how much he talks about the kingdom and how much he talks about heaven. Um, why does he keep doing that? Because he knows that as counterintuitive as it might seem to us in the midst of our sufferings, which demand all of our attention, which present themselves with this ultimate meaning, it's, we are the most important thing going on. He knows that the right way to survive that is to lift your eyes up, to refuse to let your suffering keep your head bowed and your eyes at your feet, but to lift your eyes up to the hills because that's where your salvation is going to come from. I love the moment in The Lord of the Rings, and, the, and the, Peter Jackson did this well in the movie, when um, Helm's Deep is under siege and it looks as if everything's about to fall apart. And then the sun, as the sun is rising, Gandalf appears at the top of the hill and he rushes down the hill and that's their salvation with the rest of the riders of Rohan at his back. And that's a lot of, that's the spiritual situation. When we're in our deepest, darkest moments, when we're in the valley of the shadow of death, our salvation nevertheless comes from the hills. How are we going to find the courage? How will we even get the idea to lift our eyes up? Something has got to shake us out of the tininess, the smallness of the world of our suffering so that we have a chance to look up and contextualize that, yeah, this is horrible. This, this does suck. But, this is not all there is, and this is not what ultimately matters. I cannot worship this suffering. 
Um, Junius, remind me of your wife's name. Rebecca. Rebecca, can I pray for you guys? That'd be great. Father, I come before you um, with and on behalf of my brother Junius and my sister Rebecca. Um, Father, life is is hard, and you know it full well. You also know the future filled with hope set before each of us. We trust um, we trust in your word that you have poured into our lives every spiritual resource for the faithful living of these days. We thank you for Junius. We thank you for Rebecca. We thank you um, for your hand of blessing upon them. We ask, Father, your hand of guidance uh, as they take the next steps in their life together uh, as a couple, as a family. Um, and as Junius continues to unfold before us, um, such such beautiful images um, that are substantial, um, places in which we can set our feet hope upon which we can find our footing. So thank you for him um, and and bless them today, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank Amen. you, Junius, for joining us. Thank you. I might have to I might have to arrange a Memphis meetup. I'm thinking. Sounds fun. Thinking. All right. All right. We'll talk soon. Take That's care. Junius Johnson. You can find him online at juniusjohnson.com. We'll be right back. All right, go ahead and mark your calendar. Uh, We're going to have a little kindness challenge get-together on Sunday, March the 7th from 7 to 8 p.m. Central. It's going to be on Facebook and YouTube. Um, And Nicole Phillips and I are going to, I don't know, we're going to do something. We don't have all the details worked out yet, but go ahead and mark your calendar. 7 to 8 p.m. March the 7th, some kind of meetup online with Carmen and Nicole Phillips to talk about kindness. We want kindness to be contagious. We want you to participate in the kindness challenge that we've got going on right now. Um, why? Why? Well, because it all ends on um, on Bill uh, Bill Arnold's birthday, and we want to have a lot to celebrate. So there you go. That's that is the that is the real truth behind our whole project. Well, not really. We really want you as a Christian to be walking your faith out in ways that honor Jesus. And one of the ways uh, that we do that is by showing kindness to our neighbors. So let us know how you're showing kindness. If you need some ideas, we got a ton of them posted right now. Go to MyFaithRadio.com, participate in the Kindness Always initiative, plan to join me for a live event um, online on March the 7th, 7 to 8 p.m. with Nicole Phillips, and, and plan to really celebrate when uh, we bring the Kindness Challenge home on April 1st. We got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.